the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the world under siege, missiles baked in bread, and lethal finger guns. The Cobra War Trilogy has arrived. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio, filling in for Tony Daniel, who was last seen fending off a Martian raiding party in the parking lot. I hope he's all right. This time on the podcast, we have an interview with Timothy Zahn, the author of this month's omnibus volume, The Cobra War Trilogy, containing novels Cobra Alliance, Cobra Guardian, and Cobra Gamble. These are the fourth, fifth, and sixth volumes in the Cobra series and tell of an interstellar war between the cybernetically enhanced Cobra soldiers and the alien Trofts. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Now here's the news. We've got the month's new free fiction and nonfiction pieces available now on Bain.com. First up, we have The Science of Dr. Gribbleflots by Rick Boatwright, a fascinating look at the real 17th century science behind the alchemist hero of the upcoming Ring of Fire novel, 1636, The Chronicles of Dr. Gribbleflots, which he co-authored with Karen Offord. If you've ever wanted to learn about the crazy world of early European chemistry, Rick Boatwright will get you off to a great start. And in the fiction department, we have something of a curiosity for you, a very curious curiosity indeed. Available now, live and in color, we have the first part of Frederick Turner's epic science fiction poem, Apocalypse, for your enjoyment. You heard that right. This is an epic poem, ladies and gentlemen, a poem, in the proud tradition of the Iliad and Beowulf, no less, detailing humanity's brave struggle in the face of the end of the world. Each week, for the next ten weeks, we'll be releasing another portion of Mr. Turner's masterpiece on the Bain main page, so be on the lookout for that. Once the whole poem's released on the website, the complete work will be available at the ebook shop for one low price starting this October. The Science of Dr. Gribbleflots by Rick Boatwright and Frederick Turner's Apocalypse, Part 1, are available free right now on Bain.com. Now for our interview with New York Times number one best-selling author Timothy Zahn. I'd like to welcome Timothy Zahn to the podcast. Timothy Zahn is the Hugo Award winner and the author of the New York Times number one best-selling Star Wars novel, Heir to the Empire, which was, incidentally, the first book I ever purchased, so you can imagine what this is like for me right now. Born in Chicago, he earned a B.S. in physics from Michigan State University and an M.S. in physics from the University of Illinois. He sold his first story to Analog in 1978 and immediately attracted attention as a new writer of science fiction based on real, cutting-edge science. Bain published his original Cobra trilogy in one volume, and now the long-awaited second Cobra War trilogy is new in one combined volume this month from Bain. Mr. Zahn has written over 50 novels, including the popular Conqueror and Dragonback series, as well as the Manticore Ascendance series with David Weber and Tom Pope and Cobra Outlaw, the eighth book in the Cobra series. Welcome, sir. Hello. Thanks for having me. 
All right, thanks for being here. Uh, first question, uh, just as an icebreaker for those who don't already know, what exactly are the Cobras? They were warriors who were designed to be kind of guerrilla forces. Uh, the dominion of man, the human side space, had uh, been invaded by the alien troughs. A couple of their worlds had been conquered and taken over. Uh, the Cobras were to be la- dropped into the occupied planets and form a core for resistance. Uh, since lugging around a rifle or a blaster or whatever is kind of obvious uh, when you're in enemy-controlled territory, the Cobras had their weapons implanted into their bodies. So they had two uh, fingertip lasers, uh, metalwork lasers, and a, uh, an anti-armored laser down the uh, left ca- uh, calf, sonic weapons, uh, bone laminae for strength, a servo motor system for uh, extra strength and agility. And um, the big key to all this was a little uh, a nanocomputer implanted at the base of their brains that could take over the whole servo network so you could have pre-programmed reflexes uh, combat reflexes and targeting and all of this. So uh, they won the battle. This is shown in the first uh, first Cobra novel and the, the follow-ups. By the time we get to Cobra War, we're about 100 years past that. It's been about three generations. And um, the, they didn't know what to do with the Cobras after the war, so they sent them out with a, a colonist group past the troughed assemblage uh, out to some worlds that were habitable uh, that, that became known as the Cobra Worlds. And uh, they've been living out there unconnected from the Dominion uh, for about 100 years. And um, when Cobra War begins, a group of troughts have decided to attack the Cobra Worlds and the uh, also human but not associated world of Kasama. And that should probably give you a, a good lead-in into things. Yeah, very much so. Uh, and before we do actually get too far into things, a confession on my part. I haven't gotten around to reading the original Cobra trilogy just yet. Uh, I thought I'd jump right in since this book was coming out this month uh, and see what I could see. Um, now, is that something you'd recommend or say is even possible for readers who just want to jump right in? Well, did you get lost? Uh, not especially. I guess you have me there. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think that's actually a good idea that you did it that way so that we could see how that works. I mean, obviously, I know it all, so I don't know whether or not that would be a problem for a new reader. But I was careful to put in enough background and layer in enough exposition that it might be a little confusing at first, but within a couple of chapters, you should be able to uh, pick up the general gist of things and, and get going with it. So uh, it's nice historically so you can do, for, to see where the Moreau family came from and how this all came to be, uh, but it wouldn't be entirely vital and necessary. Right. Well, I, I didn't have too much trouble, but I was just wondering, because you pick up things sitting in the office. I feel like I've read several of these books uh, from all of our authors that I haven't even gotten around to yet, so I, I don't know how much was uh, just my daily experience informing what I knew already. I, I think it's certainly helpful to start with the original trilogy, but again, you can probably pick things up without too much trouble. And that I'd recommend going back to the originals just so you can see how this all came about. Oh, I plan on it, and you should too, everyone listening. Uh, now that I've got that off my chest, though, uh, let's talk about our heroes. One of the things I really liked about this uh, this trilogy is that it focuses more on the, the family aspect of, uh, of our heroes, specifically, uh, in the first book at least, on the mother-son team of Jin and Merrick Moreau. 
The Cobra series has always been about the Moreau clan, but it's my understanding that this is the first time the series has really moved into this sort of multi-generational dynamic. Uh, having a mother-son team head up an action story is uh, very unusual, uh, at least in my experience. Uh, what inspired you to have this sort of dynamic, and what do you think it brings to the trilogy? Well, as you say, it's always the story's always been about the Moreaus. Johnny Moreau was one of the first, uh, the first Cobras. Uh, in fact, he, he started as a short story or a novelette in uh, Analog uh, called When Johnny Comes Marching Home that was supposed to be an, an analog to uh, the returning war veterans who people were afraid of and doubled in this case because the Cobras couldn't have all of their weapons taken out of their bodies. So they were soldiers who were coming back home armed. And, of course, most of them just wanted to go back to their lives, but there was still some a certain amount of fear in their communities and such. Started out at one novelette, grew to two, and then uh, Jim Bain and Betsy Mitchell uh, asked me to do a novel or two or three, and that's where the first ones came from. But they were all they, they were all focusing on a given generation. You had Johnny Moreau in the first book, uh, his sons in the second, and then his granddaughter in the third. This one, uh, when we started this Cobra War, I wanted to do a little bit different. I wanted a trilogy that, instead of spanning three generations, is a current day within a, you know, a few months time span of uh, just the whole war. And because I had uh, Jin and her husband and her two sons and her daughter, four of which, except the daughter, were Cobras, it made sense to put them all into the mix. And just the way the logic of it worked out, uh, Jin and her son Merrick are the two who wind up going to Kasama in the first book. And then we follow uh, others of the family as the trilogy progresses. There were more than 20 years between the publication of Cobra Bargain, the last of the original trilogy, and Cobra Alliance, the first of this new one. Uh, why such a long separation? Do you have a plan for what would become the Cobra War trilogy later on, or was it just something you decided to revisit, you know, an old project uh, 20 years later? I probably would have gone back, except this Star Wars stuff kind of intervened. <laughs> and uh, they kind of kept me busy for about 20 years, uh, that and subsidiary works. Uh, what happened with Cobra War was, I think, uh, Jim Bain had some kind of a poll up online asking what people would like reprinted. And my Black Collar books and the Cobra books uh, were high on the list. So uh, he approached me, or they, they approached me to possibly do some new Cobra books. That was the first time in years I'd even thought about revisiting that, but it was uh, seemed like a good idea. And as I worked on it, this is this is what I came up with. The okay, we'll let's stick with one generation for this, and just focus on actual war and battle. Gotcha. So it sort of grew in the moment later on. It wasn't the seeds weren't completely planted the whole time. Oh no, no. I I, I tend to be focusing on one or two books down the line, and and typically, let's see. At the moment, I think I've got five books on contract, Ooh. maybe more. So I I got a couple of new projects in mind, but they're way back burner at this point. And as I say, new Cobra books were, were not even on the stove for most of that 20 years. Gotcha. Just curious, though. More on those new ones in a minute. When we pick up the story in Cobra Alliance, the Cobras find themselves somewhat on the outs with the government of their worlds. They've, they're seen as a bit obsolete or unnecessary. We've touched on this a little bit already, but can you tell us a bit more about why that is and how it came to be this way? I, it just seemed to me 
following typical politics, there are always going to be some some people who are very supportive of the military, and there will be others who, against all evidence, think the military is either too large or unnecessary. And especially in the Cobra World's case, they hadn't really had any kind of an enemy for quite a while. They'd had a run-in with Kasama that's uh, uh, detailed in the third book, Cobra Bargain. Uh, but the Kasamans didn't know where they were, couldn't get there. The trough, local troughs were being friendly and trading partners. And why do we need a military anyway? So I thought you're going to have some people who say a military is a deterrent. That's why they're being so nice to us. Other people saying they will be nice to us whether we have a deterrent or not. You get reflect uh, echoes of this in uh, a lot of our own politics. Uh, you have strong military supporters, and you've got people who think this is the source of all evil in the world and other other things like that. So I would just uh, project that onto the Cobra world's politics. Following off of that for a moment, um, if we can go back, we talked about the original novelette you wrote where these soldiers are coming home and they just want to uh, live their lives, but people are afraid of veterans. If we want to get metatextual for a bit, is are you saying something about America of today, or is it just science fiction being science fiction? Uh, it was at the time. It was uh, post Vietnam, and there had been all all sorts of hype about you know, returning veterans going berserk and such. Which you may have had a couple, but the vast majority really just wanted to come home and, and forget about the war. Absolutely. So that was the the impetus of it all. The the hype against Vietnam veterans coming home. Now, of course, I mean, we've, we've got the same sort of situation. We've got warriors coming home from very bad situations, and I think people are more supportive this time around, but there is an element of why were we there in the first place, you know, what uh, these guys were doing bad things, et cetera, et cetera, often with no evidence to that, but they say it anyway. Um, so it's... It's going to be. It's it's a dilemma, probably, that has been with us as long as there's been war. It just hasn't been focused on as much over uh, until the last century. So, I mean, it's not deliberately okay. I am going to do a book about returning veterans. It's the the primary purpose of all of these is to entertain. Absolutely. And if there's something useful and you know, philosophical or something that makes you think in there, that's a bonus. That was that was about because, what I thought uh, you'd say. Um, it, it, comes about just because I am I am who I am. I have my own thoughts and and uh, points of view, and that just kind of comes out in the writing. Right, more of an emergent phenomenon, not a not a mission statement. Yeah, I I, I like. I think it was Warner who said, if you want to send a message, call Western Union. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Although, uh, between the Cobra series and Black Color, you do seem to have an interest in the idea of the super soldier. Uh, would you say that's a fair assessment? Uh, what about super soldiers do you think is so appealing, either to yourself as a writer uh, or to your audience? Uh, the, the super soldier is definitely something I've latched on to, mainly because I have no idea how to deal with regiment-sized uh, military forces. So uh, it's much simpler for me to focus on small groups of uh, elite types rather than uh, the whole armor, uh, you know, hammer slammers, armor uh, we uh, uh, arm or whatever, or battalions or regiments or or anything of that size. So it's just uh, it's it's a easier for me to manage, and I think I get to be closer to the characters that way and be, be able to bring them out a bit more than if they're just part of a big big organization. That makes sense. Sort of a write what you know sort of thing, and everyone knows people. Okay. Yes. 
That makes a lot of sense. Uh, if we can shift gears, if you don't mind, to uh, talk about Kasama for a minute. Uh, we go back there at the beginning of this trilogy, having uh, having been there at the end of uh, the original Cobra trilogy. Right. And the people of Kasama have this uh, very peculiar culture. It turned out to be one of my favorite things about the uh, about the series. Can you tell us a bit about Kasama and what makes it such a unique and standout place in the Cobra universe? They were basically a lost colony, a colony ship that had had a malfunction, went off, wound up someplace that wasn't intended to, you know, probably hundreds of years ago from the Dominion of Man. And they had were alone, isolated. There's a, a hint of Iranian or Middle Eastern in their names and... Uh, some of their politics and such, not, I mean, nothing directly, but uh, just kind of hints of that, that culture and era. And they have never been all that, because they've been isolated and they don't really know where they are, they've always been a little bit nervous, paranoid, whatever, so they've always been cautious. Uh, in Cobra Bargain, we find them under what they think is considered an attack by the Cobra worlds and also uh, by the Trofts, a, a plot against them by both of them. So by the time we get to Cobra War, they have ramped up that paranoia into we are going to be as prepared for anything that comes by as we possibly can. Uh, that paranoia is actually that it sounds it sounds strange to say that their paranoia was my favorite thing about them, but it manifests in a lot of uh, frankly entertaining ways. Uh, the the best the best example of this is, is that they always seem to have an escape route. Uh, there's some sort of contingency plan, no matter what situation on Kasama, especially that they're in. They have whether it's a uh, a backdoor escape from the hospital uh, to go into mild spoilers, or these yeah. networks of tunnels they have uh, under underlying their cities. It seems like every time they're in a in, in a tight spot, they 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 fall back on these these plans, almost like they've been setting up this chess game with whoever their opponents are going to be. Can you talk a bit more about why you chose this sort of hyper planning aspect to their culture? consequence of we were alone for so long and then suddenly we were plotted against by two separate peoples. Uh, the, the consequence when you start with being nervous and slightly paranoid is to go all out. And part of the fun of this was to have uh, Jin and her son Merrick going from a culture which is largely, we don't need a military, nothing is, you know, nothing is going to bother us, to this culture of Everything is likely to bother us, and we're going to be prepared. Uh, showing just the contrast between the the uh, casualness of the Cobra worlds have gotten into, and they are not ready for the Troft invasion. Whereas the Kasamans don't have nearly the technology, etc., that the Cobra worlds do, but they are ready for everything. They are loaded for bear. It almost got to the point where it, they seemed exasperated. Like, really, you guys had a plan? Um... Again, uh, speaking of, the other big players in this series, of course, are these aliens, the troughs, who have tangled with humankind in the past. Now it seems they're back for blood. Um, can you tell us about the troughs and why they're back? What changed uh, to set up the Cobra War? Well, the interesting thing about the troughs you learn in, in the original Cobra novel is this huge empire of probably 120, 130 worlds is not an empire. It is composed of two and three planet planetary system demeans. 
that are jockeying for position. The thing is extremely fragmented. And the only way you get any of them to work together is by presenting a threat that makes them, that threatens more than one demean. So what we have with Cobra War is something has happened that has caused two or three or four of these uh, local uh, demeans to come together and attack the Cobra world. And you don't really know why uh, until the uh, Cobra Rebellion trilogy, which uh, I'll be finishing the third book really soon sometime, real soon. Um, but that, that is where we start figuring out how all this is going on, what is going on, and um, figure out a way to get ourselves out from under whatever the problem is. I won't be any more specific than that. Oh, yeah, please don't. I don't want to ruin the surprise. <laughs> uh, would you describe them, then, as a bit feudal? Or? Uh, feudal, um, yeah, Machiavellian, um, e each one looking for advantage over the others. Yeah, it's, it's very... It is the opposite of being organized. So we have a third group. We've got an organized Cobra Worlds that is casual about anything happening because nothing ever has for, for years. We have the Kasamans who are very organized and ready for anything. And we have the Troughs that are completely un disorganized, but they've got some very powerful ships and, and weaponry. So it makes for an interesting mix when I go into tactics and strategy and how how you deal with each of these. Right, it's a pretty unbalanced set, and that makes for, uh, it, it makes everything really entertaining. That was, uh, it wasn't like two matched opponents going after each other. Yeah, it, it's fun to, it's fun to give your, your, uh, antagonists different abilities, because their tactics will go one direction, your tactics, tactics will go a different direction, and writing those, and writing how you, you deal with each other, is part of the fun of doing this kind of military SF. Absolutely. I hadn't considered the mismatching before as a, as an asset, but it really is. Mm -hmm. All right. Can you tell us anything about what you're working on now? Any, any new projects? Well, we are working on finishing up the third Manticore Ascendant book, uh, David Weber, Tom Pope, and me. Uh, that one is called A Call to Vengeance. We are, uh, the, the first draft has been done, uh, Tom is doing a, uh, a markup of the manuscript, and then it'll go to David, who will do more markup, and then uh, you know, I'll, I'll incorporate all of that in. Uh, we have another contract, or three more Manticore Ascendants, so those will be coming in down the line. That's exciting. Uh, I have a new, a new series starting a tour next year with, um, called Sybil's War, S-I-B-Y-L, apostrophe S. Uh, about a young girl who's snatched from Earth and taken aboard an alien ship, a uh, huge thing, thing that uh, humans and various other aliens have been brought in to repair. And, of course, things are not what they seem and all of that. You know the, you know the drill on that. Oh, yeah. So that, Never is. Uh, that, that starts next year. Uh, coming in November is uh, my StarCraft novel, StarCraft Evolution. No. on the, uh, the the game StarCraft. Yeah. And and then, of course, in April, as uh, we all learned this week, well, I knew it already, but most everybody <laughs> learned it this, this weekend, uh, a, a Star Wars book called Thrawn. That's the big one. It'll be a prequel book to his appearance in Season 3 of Star Wars Rebels, the TV show. So set sort of around the, the Clone Wars, or even earlier? Or can you even say? I don't want to get you in trouble. Rebels is set... It's leading up to A New Hope, the first Star Wars movie. Right. 
So it is a few years before. So it's between Clone Wars and the classic Star Wars movies is where Rebels is set. Gotcha. So that is where Thrawn is, his appearance is set in the show and where the, uh, the novel will be. All right, early days of the Empire then. Very exciting. Yes. All right, I won't harp on that too much, though. I uh, I know how, uh, I guess, how Disney and Lucasfilm can be about spoilers. Well, you're welcome to harp. I just can't harp back because I can't say anything more. <laughs> well, I was very excited to see it all the same. Like I said earlier, Heir to the Empire was, I think, I'm about 90% sure, the first book I ever bought. I must have been five or six. I uh, I stopped going to libraries because I had gotten a, a book someone had sneezed in or something. It was gross, so I... Uh, Started buying my own books, and that was the first one I, uh, I shelled out for. So it's been a it's been a real pleasure talking to you today, you. sir. All right, and that just about wraps it up. Okay. Uh, once again, the book is the Cobra War trilogy, and it's available now from booksellers everywhere. Uh, Mr. Zahn, thanks for taking the time to come out and talk with us. Thanks for having me. Have fun. Now we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyber-spy Adele Mundy? The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to their real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe even along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is another entry in David Drake's The Sea Without a Sh- Xenos on Cinnabar. Adele was in her library on the top floor of Chatsworth Minor when she heard Tovera say from the hallway, I'm sure the mistress will be glad to see you, Captain Leary. Adele couldn't have heard the words if the door hadn't been open, which meant that before speaking, Tovera had opened it without Adele's notice. Sometimes Adele was bothered by the degree to which she was oblivious of her surroundings when she was working, but she wouldn't accomplish nearly as much if she didn't concentrate and it wasn't as though she had a choice. She was who she was. Adele didn't shut down her data unit, but she shrank its display so that when Daniel came to the doorway, he wasn't looking at her through a mist of coherent light. It was mid-morning, not early, but much earlier than Adele had expected to see her housemate. He was on the West Coast so far as she knew. He hadn't returned to the townhouse last night. I have some business I'd like to discuss with you, Daniel said. But if this isn't a good time, we can... Adele set down her control wands. She hadn't missed Daniel during the three weeks he had been in Bantry, but she felt a rush of unexpected pleasure at seeing him again. I'm going over old logbooks, she said. She was compiling logs of voyages to the Ribbon Stars, the cluster in which Pantelleria and Corsera lay. Nothing that can't wait. Daniel entered the room and closed the door, then looked around. I don't come up here very often he said. This is the library, Adele said with a deadpan expression. The suite on the floor below is my living quarters, and no, I don't see much difference in the piles of books and records either. Is there a chair? There, she pointed. Just put those chip files on the floor. 
They should have kept dust off the seat at any rate. Daniel lifted the stack of frames into which chips, those on top appeared to be transcriptions of local histories, were clipped. Instead of transferring them to the floor, he sat holding them in his lap. He seemed to be ill at ease. Tom Sand asked me to transport his stepson to Coursera to hunt for treasure, Daniel said, packing a remarkable amount of information into a few words. I've agreed to do so, barring unforeseen factors. Strictly speaking, there wasn't a question in what Daniel had said, but even Adele's doubtful social instincts told her that she had to respond. I wasn't aware that Mistress Sand had a son, she said, expanding her data unit's display and switching to public records on Bernice Sand. I know almost nothing about her except as it directly affects me. Adele's ignorance of Bernice Sand's private life was a matter of choice. She didn't want to know anything that Bernice didn't choose to tell her. She hadn't delved into Daniel's background either, though she was pretty sure that she wouldn't have learned anything of significance if she had. Daniel was politely reticent about the names of women with whom he had been intimate. She couldn't think of any other subject on which a simple question to him would not have brought an equally simple answer. And courtesy aside, Adele wasn't sure Daniel remembered many of the names. She knew quite a lot about Daniel's sister, however. Deirdre would probably be surprised to learn how much information Adele had amassed about someone who was wealthy and notably cautious. Mr. Sand has been looking for investors, Daniel said. She doesn't know her husband has come to me. Tom is afraid that the boy, well, he's 27, older than I am, will be killed by any captain he can hire to take him to Corsera in its present condition. Adele sniffed. In the present situation, she said, Rickard Cleveland, the name was readily available, and anyone accompanying him will be in a great deal of danger, leaving aside their personal motives. She checked her data on Corsera again and raised her eyes to Daniel's. I would not advise that we take the Princess Cecile to Corsera. Even though she is a private yacht at present, both parties would certainly view her as a Cinnabar warship, as she has been often enough, of course. The Pantellarians have sent six destroyers with their expeditionary force. The independence movement has a single destroyer manned by Pantellarian exiles. A corvette like the Sissy would make a significant difference in the power ratio in either direction. The Princess Cecile, commanded by Captain Daniel Leary, could make a great deal of difference. Adele didn't add that because it would have been boastful. The Sissy was more her home than this family townhouse was, and because Daniel already knew that. I'm going to check with Mon, Daniel said. Bergen and Associates refits a lot of small freighters, and he'll be able to direct me to a solid ship. Mon had served under Daniel as a lieutenant in the RCN. Adele believed that most people were superstitious, but spacers were more stubbornly convinced of their foolishness than she had seen in most other occupations. When bad luck got Mon a reputation for being a Jonah, Daniel had made him manager of Bergen and Associates, the small shipyard which Daniel's uncle Stacy had willed to him. The art had flourished under Mon's direction. Daniel's kindness to a friend and associate had been good business financially. I'll need to discuss this with Mistress Sand, Adele said neutrally. She didn't bother to add, if that's all right with you. Daniel had come to her with a problem, so he expected her to use her own judgment about how to deal with her end of it, which was primarily information gathering. Adele assumed that Tom Sand felt the same way, but she didn't care. 
What he said to his wife Bernice was his own business. What Lady Mundy said to Mistress Sand, who directed Cinnabar's intelligence agents, was Lady Mundy's business alone. And of course, Daniel said, Cleveland himself probably doesn't know about our involvement. I think we should talk to him together, but I'd rather you set up the meeting through his mother. He raised an eyebrow in question. Adele nodded crisply. Yes, I'll take care of that, she said. She didn't foresee a problem with Mistress Sand, but intra-family matters rarely proceeded by logic. She would deal with the situation as it arose, as she did with every other situation. Daniel grimaced again. Adele realized that he was concerned to be involved with her life outside the RCN. This situation would not have arisen had she not been associated with Mistress Sand. Look, Adele, he said, forcing himself to look at her instead of out the window toward the head of the cul-de-sac on which the townhouse stood. He probably couldn't see the tram stop there unless he stood up. I said I'd do this for Sand because he's a good fellow who needed help, and because I thought it was maybe something that you'd want done. But if you think it's a bad idea for any reason, I'll see Sand and shut the business off to his face. Adele shrugged. I do want it done she said, then smiled. As much as I want anything done, of course, there are doubtless factors which we don't and can't know at present, which could make this a very bad idea. She smiled more broadly, probably as much of a smile as she ever showed the world. On the other hand, unpredicted factors can have good results, too. I had many valid reasons for choosing to study at the academic collections on Blythe when I was sixteen but they did not include getting me off Cinnabar ahead of the prescriptions in which the rest of my family died. Daniel laughed and rose to his feet. Well, he said, I hope we won't learn that we lifted from Cinnabar just before the revolution in which all noble families were massacred. But other than that, I'll remain optimistic. He nodded to her as he opened the door. Hogg and Tovera both waited at the stairhead, good servants waiting for their master's instructions. I'll talk to Mon. Daniel said over his shoulder. When I've got that nailed down, we can see about Cleveland and what the bloody hell he's got in mind. Yes, said Adele, which meant she needed to talk privately and in person with Bernice Sand. She keyed in Mistress Sand's private contact address. Chapter 4 Xenos on Cinnabar The doorman bowed Adele into the lobby, where a cadaverous man in black probably the club secretary rather than a lower functionary, waited behind a lectern. I'm to meet Mistress Cleveland for lunch, Adele said, using the name she had been given. My name is Mundy. The secretary checked the display built into his lectern, then raised his eyes and smiled falsely. Why, yes, Mistress Mundy, he said, tapping a call button. A boy, if he was older than sixteen, he was badly undernourished, came out of an alcove behind the secretary, buttoning his coat. Daniel will take you back, the gray room, Daniel. Adele avoided blinking, though the boy's name had been a surprise. Daniel wasn't an uncommon name, of course, but that was looking at the matter logically. The Oriel Club was old, but it wasn't one that members would mention when they wanted to impress other people. It had been founded by residents of Oriel County to have a place to eat and sleep when they had business in the capital. The kitchen was said to be very good on mutton dishes, which made sense, as sheep were the first thing one thought of in the rare instances when someone mentioned Oriel County. 
A boy swaggered ahead of her, past a reading room with leather-covered chairs, then through the grill room to the left hand of the pair of private rooms in back. The three diners in the grill room were decently but not stylishly dressed. They glanced up from their meals, mutton curry in all cases, but Adele was no more interesting to look at than they were. The gray room, the boy said, pulling the door open without announcing them to the occupant of the room. He was what you would expect from junior staff in a club whose secretary had to check his files to determine whether a guest was expected. Bernice Sand sat across the table facing the door, a decanter of amber liquid, whiskey, unless she had changed her habits since Adele last saw her, and two glasses were already on the table. Thank you, Daniel, said Mistress Sand. We're not to be disturbed unless we call you. The boy closed the door. Sand smiled grimly and said, Lock it, if you would, Mundy. Despite my clear direction, it's quite possible that someone will bustle in with a carafe of water or a tablecloth. Adele snicked the lock and sat down. I suppose shooting the first few intruders would be overreaction, she said. This was my first husband's club, said Mistress Sand. She didn't react to the joke. I kept the membership after his death. There are times I like to be thought of as Mistress Cleveland, who owns land in Oriel County. Mistress Cleveland and her guests don't attract attention. Sand was below middle height and solid. It would be accurate, though uncharitable, to describe her build as cylindrical. Her complexion had been ruddy when she introduced herself to Adele five years before. Now her skin had a gray undertone, and her cheeks sagged. I appreciate that, said Adele, though I wanted to talk with you in a private capacity. My friend Captain Leary plans to visit Corsera, and I expect to accompany him. Sand had begun to pour whiskey into Adele's glass unasked. The decanter ticked the rim of the glass hard, but neither broke. She set the decanter down, stared across the table at Adele, and drained the last ounce from her own glass. I don't know how you heard about this Monday, she said in a rasping voice, but I'm glad you did. I usually don't know how you learn things, of course. Not for the first time, Adele realized that people often gave her too much credit. Surely it wasn't unusual for a husband worried about his wife's problems to contact her associates in hope of finding a solution. Aloud, Adele said, Explain the situation from your viewpoint, if you would. The way Mr. Sand answered that deliberately neutral request would tell more than the facts of the situation, for which Adele had many objective sources. My son Ricard returned from Corsera two weeks ago, Sand said, showing that she was here a mother, rather than a Cinnabar patriot or an intelligence director. I hadn't heard from him or of him for almost three years. I... Well, it was reasonable to assume that he was dead. She had already refilled her glass. She drank half of the contents. Adele's fingers were busy with her control wands, but she had no desire to try the splash of whiskey in her own glass anyway. Given the resources Mistress Sand controlled, Ricard's total disappearance did indeed imply that the boy was dead. The deaths of Adele's own family were to her a series of events sealed in a block of crystal. She had no feelings about them, just generalized despair and anger. Adele recognized that other people had different reactions, and perhaps mothers generally differed. Certainly she felt no empathy with any other aspect of motherhood.
Ricard explained that he was now a follower of a religion formed on Coursera. The Transformationists, Sand said. You can call it a cult if you like. She grimaced. Nothing Adele had observed of Mistress Sand suggested that the older woman had any religious belief. It must have been painful to learn that her son had embraced religion, and particularly that he joined some foreign cult. I don't have an opinion on religious matters, Adele said. It was a mild rebuke to anyone who knew her as well as Mistress Sand did. In any case, the boy has returned unharmed. Given the way human beings behaved, Adele suspected that Rickard may have become a transformationist for no other reason than that it would horrify his mother. Well, that was better than him becoming a traitor to Cinnabar, which might as easily have happened. Sorry, Mundy, Sand muttered, taking another drink. Yes, quite unharmed. Elements on Coursera have declared the planet independent from its homeworld, Pantelleria, and the Pantellerians have sent a force to regain control. I suppose you know all about that. I have the basics, Adele said. I'll be learning more and if you have data that I might not find elsewhere. That was extremely unlikely, but it was polite as well as potentially a means of saving time. I'd appreciate seeing it. Yes, of course, said Mistress Sand. I'll have everything sent to you as soon as I leave. She reached for the decanter. The transformationists aren't pacifistic, she said. They're mostly foreigners like Ricard, though he says there are both Corsairans and Pantellerians in the, well, faith. They're supporting the independence movement, but they're concerned that whoever wins may decide the transformationists would make a good scapegoat. They're arming so that they don't look like an easy target. Transformationism sounds like an admirably pragmatic faith, Adele said, whatever its philosophical tenets which is some consolation to a mother, San said with a brief smile, though not a great one. She set her glass down and said, Rickard has located what he insists is a treasure buried by the first settlers of Corsera. I didn't go into the details, but he's not a stupid young man, and he has some experience with subsurface mapping. He held a position with an engineering firm here in Zenos, Sand grimaced again. Adele raised her own glass for the first time and sipped what was indeed whiskey. She didn't doubt that it was a good variety, though that was a taste she had never cultivated. She said deliberately, I wouldn't thank a friend who told me that I was drinking too much. Mistress Sand's hand paused halfway to the decanter. She blinked as though she had just awakened to find herself on the pentacrest, stark naked and singing the banner high, the alliance anthem. She pushed the decanter to the side of the table and said, Monday, I have occasionally been concerned that I would be told that you had shot yourself. I don't believe that anyone will ever suggest that you're drinking too much. I'll keep that in mind, said Adele, setting her glass down again. Look said Mistress Sand, sitting straighter than she had since Adele entered the room. I wouldn't have ordered you, well, with you, I mean, asked, to get involved. But your involvement is the best news I've had since my son came home. She smiled wryly and added, since he explained why he'd come home, that is. 
I can give you as much official support as you want, and for Captain Leary as well. If he'd care to take the Princess's seal to the Ribbon Stars under RCN auspices, I can arrange that. I will pass on your offer to Captain Leary, Adele said. She felt no need to inform Mistress Sand of what Daniel was thinking. Does the Republic have a position on the Corsera situation? Neither we nor the Alliance cares what happens to Corsera, Sand said. Oh, there are functionaries on both sides, some of them wearing uniforms who feel very strongly one way or another. But the position of the Senate and of Garantor Pora, as best we can determine, I can determine, is that all the parties involved on Corsera can go to hell in their own way, and the more quickly the better. Sand sighed, touched her glass, and pushed it firmly aside as she had the decanter. Despite that, she said, there's a very real possibility that we'll shortly be at war over some silly business involving Corsera, even though nobody wants it. No sane person wants that. Adele pursed her lips, looking for the correct phrasing. People in general did not use words as precisely as she did, and she needed to be understood this time. If I go to Corsera as a private citizen, she said, meeting the older woman's eyes, as I expect at the moment I will do, I cannot guarantee that the actions I take will be to the benefit of the Republic. Mistress Sand laughed. Monday, she said. I can't guarantee that the sun will rise in the east tomorrow, but I would bet on it with almost as much certainty as I would bet that whatever you do will be in Cinnabar's best interests. She paused. She was fully herself again. Bernice Sand, whose mind controlled an intelligence apparatus which was more valuable to the safety of the Republic than any battleship in the RCN. I can justify all the help my organization provides you, Monday, she said forcefully. But in my own mind, I am very clear that you are going to Corsera as a favor to a colleague. Adele rose. I'll get back to preparations then, she said. Captain Leary and I will need to talk to your son, probably this afternoon. Yes, of course, Sand said, rising also. I'll tell him to expect your call. And I'm not doing this for a colleague, Adele thought as she opened the door to the grill room. I'm doing it for a friend. Bergen and Associates Shipyard, Cinnabar Mon had an office on the top of what was now the administration building, it had been Hangar 1 when Daniel first visited the yard as a boy, but Daniel had asked to amble along the waterside with his manager while they talked. As expected, Mon was delighted to give his co-owner, Daniel had given Mon a 10% share out of the 50% Daniel had inherited, a tour to show how well the yard was doing. The associates of the yard's name was Uncle Stacy's financial backer, Corder Leary, who had married Stacy's sister and sired Deirdre and Daniel on her. Corder had little or nothing to do with his wife while Daniel was growing up, but he had made financial provision for his brother-in-law on Stacy's retirement from the RCN at the rank of commander. Deirdre handled all business between the yard and its silent partner. Daniel preferred not to deal with his father, and to the degree that Mon cared, Daniel wasn't sure that Mon even knew the full ownership arrangements, he was probably pleased as well. We're replacing all her thrusters. Mon said, gesturing to the Eswall, a small freighter in dry dock. Three or four might still pass, 
but the new owner plans to trade in the Nugget Cluster, where his own crew will have to handle the refits. He wants to put the first major overhaul as far into the future as he can. Daniel nodded approvingly at the work. Six of the Eswall's eight thrusters were on a flat car beside the dock, and the crane was winching up a seventh to join them. Several of the dock workers were missing limbs. Mon had continued Stacy Bergen's practice of hiring former RCN spacers, particularly those who were no longer fit for interstellar service. As with Daniel's decision to appoint Mon as manager, it was an act of kindness which had proven to be extremely good business. It's always a pleasure to see how well things are going, Daniel said. He beamed at the bustle. The Bergen Yard had gotten more than its share of Navy work during the war because employing injured veterans had protected it against the loss of workers to man the fleet. Things didn't seem to have slowed down since the Treaty of Amiens, though. But I came here primarily to pick your brains about a ship. I'd like to hire, or buy, perhaps purchase would be a better idea, a well-found freighter of a thousand tons or so. You know, a tramp that a crew of six could work, but with cabin space for twenty. Mon looked at Daniel and rubbed his cheek. His black hair was receding, but he had begun wearing fluffy side whiskers, which merged with a magnificent mustache. Mon was much plumper than he had been as a lieutenant, but he looked truly happy, which had never been the case when he wore an RCN uniform. Well, I tell you, sir, he said, I've got three ships myself that'd fit, though only two of them are on Cinnabar right this moment. I own them, I mean bought them out of my share of the yard's profits and fixed them up. You can have any of them for a florin. Buy or rent, I don't care. It'll be a pleasure to turn her over to you. Daniel frowned. A nearby tramp tested its intake pump by running up to high flow and exhausting the reaction mass back into the pool. The roar gave him time to think. I appreciate the offer, Mon, Daniel said as the flow whirled down to a trickle. But that's scarcely necessary. I realize the price of shipping has gone up considerably since the treaty, but, well, from the yard alone, my income is very substantial thanks to your good management. Which ships are on Cinnabar now? Mon grimaced as he thought. Well, one is the Golgotha Dancer, he said. She's the one I'd recommend. Twelve hundred tons, two antenna rings, of course, but I just replaced her high drives. Right now she's in Portola, on the East Coast loading a cargo of fusion bottles for Chateaubriand. But we can land them back on the dock in six hours, that's no problem. She's just the sort of ship I have in mind, said Daniel. He'd need to look over any offer before deciding, but he trusted Mon implicitly on the freighter's soundness. And the other? She's the Kaisha, right over here in the end berth, Mon said. He gestured forward and set off down the track around the pool. Twelve hundred tons, two antenna rings again, but she turns like a cat. I've never seen a ship so handy. In civilian service, of course. Warships had large crews, which made them handier than merchant ships, even with the same rigging. And generally, warships mounted more masts than civilian vessels also. A starship's rigging was fully automated, but anyone who expected thousands of valves and pulleys to work perfectly in service was a fool. Ships lifted and landed on pillars of plasma, and they passed through atmospheres which had their own corrosive possibilities. Without riggers on the hull, a ship would soon become mired in the matrix and eons away from anywhere her captain wanted to be. What is her crew? Daniel asked. What must be the Kaisha came in sight at the edge of the inlet channel to Lake Xenos. 
His first thought was disappointment. The freighter had a rusty, bedraggled look. But that again was a matter of crew size. Much of a warship's exterior maintenance was busy work to keep the crew occupied when the vessel wasn't in the midst of a battle. I run her with ten, Mon said. Well, nine most of the time, if I'm honest. You can sling hammocks for twenty easily enough. They were approaching from the bow, so the nose turret with its single plasma cannon was visible. Daniel nodded toward the gun and said in a neutral tone, What does she mount? A fifty-millimeter high-intensity piece, Mon said. From an Alliance pirate chaser originally, I'd guess, but I took her off a freighter out of Trobriand that I was scrapping. He pursed his lips and looked at Daniel. Look, sir, I know that's a pop gun, but this is a civilian ship, and that's all her frames will take in real use. You won't find a freighter under 5,000 tons which can handle as many as a dozen rounds from a four-inch gun without starting all her seams. Daniel laughed. Much as I'd like you to be wrong, Mon, he said, I know that you're not. And I'm trying to look inconspicuous on this business, so fitting destroyer armament would be a bad idea even if we could. Now that they were standing on the dock alongside, the Kaisha had a sharp, eager appearance. Sure, her hull was streaked with rust, but her rigging was taut and her antennas were straight, with no signs of kinks which would keep the sections from nesting properly within one another. Say, there's one more thing, said Mon. You remember the Milton? Why, sure you do. You captained her in her last fight, so sure you do. Well, she was scrapped right here when she got back to Cinnabar. I put her command console in the Kaisha when I was refitting her. A heavy cruiser's console is really too big for a 1,200-ton freighter, but the price was right. Daniel had started down the catwalk to the ship's own boarding ramp. He stopped, put his foot back on the key, and turned. You don't bloody say, he said. You don't bloody say. Mon, startled by Daniel's vehemence, said, Well, the console was first rate, even if I hear that the ship was an abortion, eight-inch cannon on a cruiser hull. You didn't hear me say the Millie was an abortion, Daniel said. Why, she slugged it out with a battleship, and it was the Millie who sailed home. He caught himself. Sailed home, yes, but under a jury rig and missing her hull after frame 260. She was scrapped when she got home, because that was the only option which made economic sense. Never mind, Mon, Daniel said. I'll take the Kaisha. He cleared his throat in embarrassment. Pardon if I sounded a bit heated, I'm, well, as you say, the Millie was my command, and he beamed at the freighter. The cruiser console may cramp the bridge somewhat, but it has full controls and display on the aft side, and that will be the perfect location for my communications officer. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and a star fleet full of cybernetically advanced super soldiers striking a blow for justice and good reading at the command of a genius admiral's worth of thanks and praise to Timothy Zahn, author of the Cobra War Trilogy. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.